In Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47, we see a church full of believers who are devoted to the activities of the church. They are growing in their knowledge of the faith. They are generous with what they have. They are meeting the needs that they see around them. They are developing deep friendships with one another. They are sharing their faith with those outside the church, and they are worshiping God regularly. That is bringing them the goodwill and the respect of everyone around them. Things are happening that are amazing to them, and they are growing in number. But almost immediately, we see pushback from the outside, and that's expected. But then, just four chapters later in Acts, we see problems inside the church. Now, the the church in Jerusalem had a lot of new believers at this point. We believe on Pentecost there were around 120 disciples in that upper room where the Holy Spirit came on them, and they became the church that went out and evangelized the city. But now there are more than 8,000 new converts. Scripture tells us that 3,000 converted on the day of Pentecost. Another 5,000 came to to the church after a confrontation with the Sanhedrin in chapter 4. And then scripture tells us that they have more being added day by day. That's a lot of baby Christians. And baby Christians come with baby spiritual maturity. That's normal. We all start out as babes in Christ when we're new to the faith. But we grow up from there. And we see the church doing that in Acts. The church in Jerusalem here in Acts 6 has a problem. It's a real problem and it needs a real solution. But it may not be the problem you think it is. The first thing I noticed was that we have some tired apostles. And tired, frustrated, exhausted people don't always make the best decisions or express it with enough graciousness. With 8,000 new converts, I imagine the 12 disciples didn't feel like they had time to sleep or breathe, much less to have a strategy meeting and figure out how they were going to organize it all and get everything done. Their response sounds a little bit cranky. Some even hear it as a little condescending. I don't think it is. I think they're just tired. They're already discovering that they're not going to be able to do everything. They're learning the same lesson that Moses learned in the wilderness with the Israelites, that delegation and cooperation are going to be essential. We all only have the 24 hours of the day, and we can't get everything done by ourselves. This still happens today. There are expectations of your clergy Everyone has their idea of where pastors should focus and where they should spend the majority of their time. In 2015, Pew Research did a study and asked how the lay people, how members of churches, expected their pastors to invest their time. And it showed that they expected clergy to spend an average of 20 hours a week engaged in pastoral care in visitation and visiting with the sick and the homebound and weddings and funerals and counseling and talking with parishioners, about 10 hours on administrative tasks, 
and then another 10 hours on sermon prep, worship planning, and Bible study teaching, which gives you a 40-hour week, although research also shows us that most pastors work an average of 65 hours a week. Lifeway research followed up and looked at pastors of effective churches and pastors of ineffective churches and what was the difference in the way those pastors invested their time in their responsibilities. Now, they defined an effective church as one that was experiencing growth. They had people making professions of faith and people coming to join the mission and ministry of that congregation. They were engaging in ministry beyond their own congregation. They weren't just inward focused. And they had giving that reached a point that allowed them to do the ministry they felt called to do. Their studies showed that pastors of effective churches spend an average of 22 hours a week in sermon prep, whereas in ineffective churches, the pastors only spent four. In effective churches, the pastors spent an average of 10 hours in pastoral care, but in ineffective churches, they spent 33. And in effective churches, the pastors spent at least five hours a week engaging people who were not part of their congregation, people outside the church who might need Jesus whereas pastors in ineffective churches tended not to spend any time doing that. That means that pastors of churches that were experiencing decline and struggling with their mission and ministry were actually coming closer to meeting the expectations of the majority of their church members, even though it might be holding their church back from being effective. And that's often because we as pastors, we want to please you. We want you to be happy. We want you to like us. It also means that sometimes we fear what will happen if you don't like us. That you'll stop coming. That you'll withhold your money. That you'll badmouth us on social media and around town. We want to help you mature as a disciple and help our church fulfill the mission of God in this place. And we hope that a congenial relationship will give us the opportunity to do that. But it also means that sometimes we're not courageous enough to tell you the truth and risk hurting your feelings. The same way that the best parent is not the one who always keeps their children happy, what's in your best interest as a parishioner might not be for your pastor to always make you happy. Pastors have to be courageous, and churches need to insist that their pastors be courageous, that they care more about maturing each of you spiritually and accomplishing the mission of God than they are in being liked. So we have tired apostles who are not delegating And they find themselves not being liked at this moment. But this isn't the problem. We also have an accusation that Greek-speaking widows are not being treated as well as Aramaic-speaking widows. In other words, there's a clique. There's a favorite group. There are people who are being treated better and given more attention, while there are others who are being neglected and not being given enough attention. It does say that this is an accusation. We don't know for sure that it's true, and it really doesn't matter. They feel it is true. 
And so it is for them. From what they could see, everyone was not being cared for equally. It doesn't look fair. But the problem, the real problem is not the way they're distributing the food. It's not even the perceived favoritism, which absolutely should not be there. But those are just symptoms, just like the clergy exhaustion was. The problem is the division that it's causing. There's tremendous power in unity. If the enemy can destroy our unity, he wins by killing what God is doing. And divisive people don't always, I would say most of the time, they don't mean to kill what God is doing. But sometimes, like Peter, when Jesus had to call him the devil or Satan and the enemy and tell him, you need to get yourself sorted out and get back in line as a disciple. This is not helpful. Sometimes we too become unintentional pawns in the hands of the enemy. The focus here in this passage becomes on the solution. How do we move back to where we need to be? And their solution is, let's put seven people in charge of doing this. The apostles cannot just add that to their list of things to do. We need to put some people over this so it is done well, so it is done right, so it is done fairly. I notice that of the seven people listed, four of them have distinctly Greek names. That means that they gave the people who felt mistreated more power and more control. And with it, more responsibility for this ministry happening. They made those who saw the problem in charge of solving the problem. That's what you'll find if you come to me because you've noticed a problem and we sit down and talk. I'm going to be looking right back at you to be part of the solution of the problem. One of the analogies we could use for the church is to compare us to a team sport. If that's true, then coaches, then pastors are the coaches and the team captains of that team. But we are all players. You see, pastors shouldn't just be coaches. They shouldn't just stand on the sidelines and tell everybody else what to do. No, they're a hybrid of coach and team captain. They're in the field. They're doing ministry. But we don't do it alone. There's a whole team. A whole team. Each playing their role and their position on the team in order to make it happen. And the coach guides, trains, empowers, encourages corrects, provides alterations, and keeps the game moving forward. My friends, we are all called to ministry. Some of us are called to a lifetime of full-time vocational ministry, but we are all called to be ministers. Your baptismal vows are a commissioning to a life of service and discipleship. We're not called to sit and sing, but to stand and serve. As our praise band shared with us so beautifully, 
to do something, to do that that God has called us to do. This is why the Bible calls us ambassadors, building blocks, and the body of Christ. We represent the kingdom of God to the world. We literally continue the ministry of Jesus to those now. We are building blocks in the church that God is creating, with each block important for the building to be strong and stable. And we are the body of Christ, with many different members of the body, each with its unique thing to do, but all incredibly necessary in order for it to function well. Don't look at your pastors as people hired to do ministry to you, but as people that you expect to train and coach you for ministry as well. And then we engage in ministry alongside of you. We do ministry to those who don't yet know Jesus and for the glory of God. Each of us must find our place. How do you do that? The first thing is to look for what bothers you. What needs to be done or needs to be done better. That may be where God is calling you. If God has given you eyes to see the need, then he may be calling you so he can equip you to be part of meeting that need. The other way is to look for where your skills and abilities intersect with the need. What are you good at? What do you have the ability to do that we need to do more of or that we need to do? The church in our passage today had a problem. They had exhausted clergy and a lack of delegation that are symptoms. The true problem is division. We need to share the work, share the load, and not allow what cannot get done to cause division among us. Division simply exploits the spiritual immaturity of some among the church. It destroys the unity and the power of God that comes with unity, and it kills effective ministry as the church. On the other hand, an effective church, a model church, empowered by the Spirit, just won't allow those divisions to take root. Open communication brings problems to light. And then the solution is to involve everyone, involve more people. That's almost always the solution to church issues. More involvement means that even more ministry can be done and done well. This allows the church to keep focusing on fulfilling the mission of God as the church of Jesus Christ, making disciples, baptizing them, teaching them all that Christ taught us, and meeting their needs. But it takes each and every one of us being willing to get involved to do our part. John F. Kennedy is famous for saying, don't ask what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. Perhaps we should say, don't ask what your church can do for you, 
but what you can do for the church. Or even better, what you can be a part of helping your church do for the world, this precious world that Jesus died for. In the model church, there are divisions of labor, not divisions among the people. And in that division of labor is diversity of ministry and an important role for each of us to fulfill. May this be so for us at Anniston First. Let us pray. Almighty God, help us to become more like you. Teach us to follow you faithfully, to seek solutions to problems, and to glorify you in all that we do. May we be as close to being perfect for you as we possibly can. This we ask in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.